Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It is Friday. This is our weekend podcast, and of course, we are uh, joined by our by our good friend and colleague Bill Crystal. The now, Bill, were you described as a Trotskyite communist or just the son of Trotskyite communists? I wasn't. I wasn't sure. Yeah, I don't but, know. I guess son son of my father who. Was a Trotskyite uh, from when he was, you know, sixteen to twenty-one or something yeah. like well, that. But weren't we all? Right. He met my mom. He met my mom at a Trotskyite meeting, I think, at the end of high school or something in Brooklyn. So that was made it all worthwhile. And uh, and then he went to the army in nineteen forty-two, I think, and realized all this not a good idea. Different versions, yes, of social communism, socialism were not a good idea. I think he sort of realized that even 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 a bit ahead of time. But yeah, I like the Trotskyite communists as if. The, like, are there Trotskyite non-communists? I don't know. I mean, yeah. So uh, this was Wendy Rogers, who is a Trumpian state senator from Arizona, who decided she was going to lash out at you and suggested you move to Venezuela because you've actually criticized the fraud it in Arizona. Is that right? I mean, that was the you must you, you must be a communist who wants to live in Venezuela if you don't go along with the stop the steal folks craziness. I guess. And, I mean, I feel like those it? of us who those of us who sort of def- of my age who defined ourselves as being part of the Reagan. Scoop Jackson, you know, anti-communist coalition. It's a little, it's a little funny to be called a communist by some person who's emerged as a big, you know, as a Trump supporter. Well, I, I, as, as you know, I wrote about this earlier this week. Uh, I was sort of inspired by that uh, that tweet about you to to write a piece that we really need a better class of insults. I mean, this is this is one of the depressing things about the current era is that everything is so dumbed down. It's this weird word salad mad lib of just, you know, dumb playground jibes. Can we just raise our game here as opposed to, you must be a communist. I mean, look, Wendy Rogers, if you held a gun to her head, uh, metaphorically, could not tell you what a Trotskyite is to save her life, right? Yeah, I, I mean, think she has friend- no idea. Our friend and colleague Tim Miller said something about this is what happens when you read the first line of a Wikipedia entry, which probably <laughs> said to Irvin Crystal as a young as a young man, as a kid, was a Trotskyite. And she said, Okay, Trotskyite look she quickly looked that up. She saw Trotsky was a communist and she and she and she went with it. But don't you think actually the stupidity, the vulgarity of the insults uh, is a feature, not a bug, in a way, right? Oh, I mean, they, it's it's it, it is. is what demagogues do. You know, they don't want to get complicated. You know, <laughs> well, no, and in fact, if you if you read Hannah Arendt, and she's talking about the rise of of totalitarianism, the dumbing down of the rhetoric is is very much a feature. It yeah. it is it is making it uh, simple, making it visceral. Um, speaking of which, um, I need to look up this NRCC fundraising thing. Um, that went out yesterday. Did you really? I saw you tweeted about it. Did you? Do you really get those things, or you just, or people pass them out to you? Or you're, you're on the. Did you give one dollar, so you're on the list or something? I don't think I got it. No, I, I think I saw it on the twitters. Oh. But I mean, it's, it's worth mentioning. Now, the NRCC. This is not the Trump campaign. It's not a Trump super PAC. This is the National Republican Congressional Committee, right? I mean, this is a separate organization. Right. Okay, so keep, keep. Keep in mind that this is this is the Republican Party. This is the establishment. These are people who are raising money to take over the House of Representatives. Okay, so it's got a picture of Trump on it, and this is an alert that goes. It says "alert" in big red letters. <laughs> and okay, maybe back up. Sorry, because <laughs> it, it, it's so easy to think that this is a parody. This is sent out to Republican donors, right? These are the people who've probably contributed in the past. So this is the Republican base. This is the way. The National Republican Congressional Committee is talking to its own people, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, so here it is. You're a traitor. You abandoned Trump. 
Now, see, if we got that kind of stuff, we figured, okay, it's Friday, right? I mean, it's, right. You know, these are donors, and they're trying to get people to give money. You're a traitor. You abandoned Trump. We were told you were a tried and true lifelong patriot. But when Trump said he'd run for president, if we took back the House from Nancy Pelosi, you did nothing. Was Trump wrong about you? This is your final chance to prove your loyalty or be branded a deserter. We're giving you one final chance to stand with Trump. You only have 17 minutes. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Who this shit? And, and I asked, you know, does this work? And well, apparently it does work because fundraising folks, you know, know what, what actually gets people going. But it is the, the, this, this fundamental contempt that they obviously have for their own people. Right. That they figure we're going to beat you. We're going to threaten you. We're going to tell you the daddy is really going to be disappointed with you. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, and I, mean, I think your point, just not to lose it, though, from a minute ago is and this is the Republican Congressional Committee, which ultimately responds and reports to the House Republican Conference to Kevin McCarthy. Um, so this isn't a Trump super PAC. It's not a third party super PAC, which is just, you know, milking people. I mean, it is just milking its own and, you know, scaring their own donors who really think Trump personally is angry at them or something. They swallowed all the donors, presumably. But yeah, but it's terrible. And, and it, again, it's, that is the Republican Party. And incidentally, I think this week, if I'm not mistaken, when Trump spoke at, at Mar-a-Lago, I guess it was, or somewhere down there, uh, to donors, that was for the National Republican Senatorial Committee. That's where he went on about I'm embarrassed to even say this on this family-friendly show, but went out about he doesn't do the golden showers thing; he just does other things or something. I can't remember what he said. Remember that? So that was that was a couple of days ago, and that was to the NRSC, the National yeah, Republican yeah. Senatorial Committee. So the notion that oh, there's a good Republican Party that they're, they're they're different from Trump. There's the Trumpy people, a little crazy. This is the National Republican Congressional Committee, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, hosting Trump, you know, featuring Trump. And uh, and and going with Trumpian rhetoric, as you've just said. So th this brings me to something that that I wrote about in my newsletter, and and you've written about and talked about a lot. It's like what what do those of us on the center right do? The Republican Party is losing I its mind, and so there's a debate going on. Do uh, you know should should never Trumpers become red dog Democrats, or should they be, you know form a third party? Is there a third way? There's a lot of back and forth on that. And, and I and I think that, that you know we we probably there's a there's a continuum and I wrote about the problem with being a red dog Democrat, which is that you know it's they don't necessarily want us. <laughs> I mean, to, right. to be quite, I actually tell a very personally embarrassing story of how um, against my better judgment I agreed to participate in something last year, and ultimately the the Democrats and the Biden folks decided we don't want to have anything to do with you right wing assholes in Wisconsin, um, but. Apparently in Virginia, things are a little bit different because I see you're doing an event over the weekend. So apparently they're more willing to forgive uh, some of the retrograde right wingers in Virginia than they were in Wisconsin. Yeah, I mean, Terry McAuliffe, slightly embarrassingly, I, I think to me, and I'm not sure very usefully for him, mentioned me as a supporter at, his, at the debate and so forth. So, yeah, so I think, look, that's, I think, gets to the point. There's a wide, A, these are not exist, these are not choices about what, you know, what religion you are or who you're going to marry, right? These are, this is a practical choice about which party or which candidate in which party you're going to support this year and next year uh, for the sake of, you know, better governance and ultimately for the sake of maintaining our democracy. So I think people are a little bit overly, I don't know what the right word is for this, you know, kind of uh, reifying this or making this as if this is your life choice. You are now a Democrat, you are still a Republican, you are, 
no, you know, you're, you're making a practical choice in these very unusual circumstances, which have, I think, correctly caused a lot of us to rethink our traditional allegiances, one usually just kind of chugs along, right? And so obviously people are going to come down slightly differently as they should in slightly different parts of the country and different races. If I, someone asked me when I did a little thing from a call a couple of weeks ago, uh, well, are you now a Democrat? I said, no, I mean, Virginia doesn't have party identification, so I can get away with saying that I'm, you know, an independent or I'm not sure. But if I were up in Maryland, I'd be voting for Larry Hogan if he were running mm-hmm. for re-election, right. the moderate Republican governor there. And I think that's fine. I mean, for me, that's fine. Other people might want to say, no, you really have to purge, you know, really make sure the Republican Party gets weak, even the decent Republicans. You can't vote for them. Other people might say, no, Bill, you're too nice to the Democrats. We need to be more discriminating and support only, you know, these Democrats and not others who are more marginal, though, in fact, McAuliffe is a moderate Democrat. And so that's that I think makes it easier for me. And Biden was, of course, in, uh, in the campaign. So I, I think there's a spectrum of totally reasonable judgment calls here. And we're all going to come down slightly differently. And a lot of it, some of it does depend, honestly, though, on where you are. So in Wyoming, I would vote for Liz Cheney right. in the primary. It's going to be a Republican uh, congressional seat anyway, the at-large seat in Wyoming. You're not helping Kevin McCarthy become speaker to vote for her in both the primary and the general election or to contribute to her. And incidentally, she, she won't vote for Kevin McCarthy for speaker. Mm-hmm. She said, and for me, that's the fundamental question, though. For 2022, leave aside you know governor's races, which are state by state, and I just happen to live in Virginia, but for 2022, it's, are you comfortable with, are you willing to support a Kevin McCarthy, uh, Scalise, Elise Stefanik, controlled House of Representatives or not. And on the Senate side, I think you met this point in your newsletter this morning, are you comfortable with a, uh, you know, uh, a Republican Party that could well nominate, you know, Mandela Vance in Ohio and God knows who in Pennsylvania and Herschel Walker in Georgia, and that's the Senate Republican Party you want to see in charge? Or do you prefer the alternative? And I think there at at the federal level, uh, though there are individual cases where one might still support a Republican, for example, Liz Cheney, since it's going to be a Republican seat anyway, um, I personally am not willing to say, yes, Kevin McCarthy uh, should be Speaker of the House. Now, a heck of a lot of people, including some who voted for Biden in 2020, are. They're more they're more convinced that the Republicans are okay, the Trump stuff is overdone, they, they're not going to be too irresponsible, they could check Biden anyway. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't, that's a judgment call and it, it's worth debating. Um, but I think but I think that is the serious discussion and debate one has to have. And again, with, I think, a real recognition of we're not making an existential choice here for the next 20 years. Uh, we're not making a, uh, uh, I'm not making a universal judgment about how every single person in this big country of ours should behave, depending on what's happening in their congressional district. Uh, there are Democrats running for Congress I wouldn't vote for, you know? Democratic well, that's, that's right. It, Congress it, it, I wouldn't yeah. vote for. So I, I, I think it's a practical choice. But I think, a uh, final point I'll say, I'll say yeah. and you and I have discussed yeah. this elsewhere, obviously, is off air. But, but people do, if they want to be giving advice or, or telling people their own judgments about actual voting as opposed to sort of analyzing trends and from sort of 30,000 feet, which is fine also, but if they want to be in the political fray, they need to be serious about it. They need to be responsive about it. It can't just be a, I think, it can't just be a fastidious, oh, look at this that they're doing here. How could you support those people? Well, okay, let's be grown up and have a conversation. If Let's look at what they're doing here and let's look at what the other guys are doing there and let's see if there's a third way. That would be great if there were. Evan McMullen's running as an independent in Utah. Maybe he has a real chance and maybe he's very much worth supporting. But um, 
but you know, we need to be, it can't just be a kind of, oh, look at that and how silly of you people to be on that side. Yeah, I, when I wrote about the, the problem with Red Dog Democrats, it was really aimed at Democrats, which is to remind them that, you know, look, um, we need to have a coalition, a pro-democracy coalition. And Ian Basson made the point, I think, very eloquently in the bulwark and on the, my podcast yesterday, that if those coalitions fracture, that's how the authoritarians win. But a coalition means that you need to be willing to make common cause with people that you disagree with, maybe disagree with on lots of things. And that's why there's a temporary alliance. And I guess I was kind of responding to this sort of pretty consistent drumbeat out there that, that you know, for some on the left, and I'm, I'm emphasizing some, you know, that are willing to embrace never Trump conservatives until they find out that they're in fact conservatives. Then it's like, oh, no, we can't. We can't, you know, be with you, you folks out there. You, you, you have to you know, meet all of these litmus tests. And I think one of the one of the good things about this current era is that I think that people have more independence, that you don't have to take everything from the team. So I'm only I'm willing to, you know, think through some of these things and think, okay, was I wrong about all of this? You know, perhaps we ought to have a different approach to families and children and family leave and all that. But but if there's a demand out there that we're only going to accept your support if you embrace, you know, free community college, abortion, rent moratoriums, uh, you know, CRT, you know, social spending, and Greta Thun- Thunberg's candidacy for sainthood, uh, then we have a problem. I mean, it's, it's, and, and I, I don't, you know, maybe I'm overreacting to some of the online folks or um, some of the vitriol here in Wisconsin, but it's like, okay, is there an existential threat? If there is, this is a moment to make those alliances. And and I think that what happened, this may seem wonky, but I think what happened in the Czech Republic this week, mm-hmm. you know, really ought to underline this. Uh, you, you did have a populist authoritarian government that was defeated because all of these other parties put aside their differences and did something that's very unusual. They they formed a coalition and it worked, but but they had to swallow a lot to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I think Maybe one way, <clears throat> one shorthand, you used the word embrace a couple of times, one shorthand way of characterizing the way to think about it is to say alliances, yes, coalitions, yes. Embracing, not so much. I mean, we don't need that. People, It's politics. It's not, you know, family life. And just as I wouldn't ask, you know, some someone who very, very strongly believes in something I don't believe in to sort of yield to me in his or her beliefs. Don't ask me to do the same. Let's just agree, practically speaking, going forward for the next few months or year or three years, perhaps, that there are some things we uh, do agree on and those are more important than the things we disagree on. And I, I think that's doable. But of course, in real life, people get annoyed and people want embraces, not just alliances. And people then you know, overreact when something goes in a direction they don't like. And sometimes there are practical choices, let's say the Biden administration is going to have to make, that'll either make you and me, I suspect, unhappy or make some people on the left unhappy. And that's just the nature of of a coalition, of coalition politics. I think what happened in Central Europe, we had a good piece on it in the Bulwark today, mm-hmm. and I think maybe one yesterday too, uh, is is pretty interesting though. And, and maybe a bit of a, a wake-up call for us. They're on the front line, so to speak. They know what it's like to lose democracy and not to have democracy. And they are looking at what's happening there. And an awful lot of people from from the center right over to the you know, center left or even beyond the center a, a little bit uh, are getting together and saying, well, we can... You know, we can litigate these issues later, but let's try to make sure we don't have authoritarianism in this country. So an, an, another shorthand version of the coalition is rent, don't buy. 
just yeah. it's, it may be temporary. Okay, so I want to talk about what's been happening in, in Virginia because it's very interesting. Uh, the Republican candidate there, Glenn Youngkin, has really been uh, trying to thread the needle um, up until now in in certain MAGA parts of Virginia. You correct me if I'm wrong about this. Um, he, you know, he really embraces uh, Trump and Trumpism, and then he comes up to the northern suburbs and tries to pretend to be sort of, you know, Mitt Romney-esque. Um, this has become much, much more difficult for him. There was a rally the other night. Now, he wasn't there, but there was a pro-Yunkin rally. Trump called in, and this happened. Um, the, the MC announced that they were going to be pledging allegiance to a flag that had been flown at the January 6th insurrection. Let's play that first soundbite. I also want to invite Kim from Chesapeake. She's carrying an American flag that was carried at the peaceful rally with Donald J. Trump on January 6th. I ask you all, I ask you all to rise and join us as Mark Lloyd leads us in the pledge. Face the flag. I pledge allegiance yeah. to the flag. That flag. So, Bill, I mean, we've been watching this uh, this revisionist history sort of gather momentum that January 6th is, is not only something uh, not to be deplored, it's to be something honored as this great patriotic moment. That was a that was a um, that was a creepy moment, but also very problematic for Glenn Youngkin because he's, he's trying to pretend that he's trying to get voters to vote for him as the non crazy Republican. Right. Right. And he had thanked the host of this rally, John Fredericks, a talk radio guy from elsewhere in Virginia, uh, to, uh, you know, for organizing this. Sorry, there's tape of him saying, I think on Frederick's radio show, I'm sorry, I can't be there. I have commitments elsewhere in the state, but, but it's great that you're hosting this. And now he's distancing himself from it. And he's trying to maintain that balance that you described of, of appealing to non-Trump. You know, Trump lost the state by 10 points. So he needs to get some Biden voters here in Northern Virginia and then keep the Trump voters in, in, in other parts of the state energized, I, I suppose. But, you know, the January 6th thing, uh, let me tie it back to our earlier discussion. I think it's important. Just it, People sometimes have this debate. I, I think our friend Jonah Goldberg does this uh, sometimes as if, as if we've learned nothing, as if this is an abstract debate about your own principles and your own history and what you believe and you don't like either party, so you're just going to kind of keep a distance and all this, as if we've learned nothing over the last five years, as if nothing's changed, as if a position that was reasonable, I would say, honestly, in 2016. I mean, I wasn't for Trump, but I think people could have swallowed hard and said, I hope he does better. People in 2018 could have said, you know, and voted, and voted for him. People in 2018 could have said, you know, he's talked a lot, but the establishment might still keep him in check and it's not really as bad as you think. And there's McMaster and there's, you know, whatever, you know, Mnuchin and all these people. And come on, it's not the party is in McConnell and Ryan are there. And so it's kind of more traditional Republicanism than you thought. And then we get the impeachment, we get Ukraine and then we get. Uh, the election, then we get the handling of the pandemic, and then we get the election campaign, and we get all the incredible demagoguery on a bunch of issues. Uh, and the party goes along and indeed fully subordinates itself to Trump. And then we get November 3rd and the election denying the big lie. And then we get January 6th. And at each stage, some people do break off to their credit, Liz Cheney most, most obviously and, and famously. But other people kind of, you know, for a day or two, they're outraged or maybe a week or two. But then it's, there's no, well, but then they sort of want to pretend none of this history happened. And what's happened since January 6th? For me, that's really almost dispositive yeah. at this point. Mm-hmm. You are supporting a party 
that took a hard look at what Trump did between November 3rd and January 6th, or could have taken a hard look if it wished to, took a look at January 6th, has taken a look at all the anti-vax stuff and all the election denial stuff since then, has taken a look at the Republican primaries in Ohio and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, has taken a look at someone like Ron Johnson, your senator, who was once a sane mm-hmm. person and is now a just unbelievable stoker of conspiracy theories and stuff. And you, and you, all of that, one can see what's happened. And then people are still sort of saying, but, you know, I'm not so sure that the party's really going in this direction. I mean, what would it take at this point, right? So that, that's where I guess I, I'm slightly less uh, accommodating than I would have been, honestly, than I was two or three or four years ago to people who said, let's keep a balance here of, of, of judgment. Let's keep it as a kind of open question as to where the party's going. Well, and, and then double back to where we started, though, when you have the NRCC putting out this raw right. Trumpian stuff, there is no distinction now between MAGA world and the Republican Party. So it, you're, you're, you're right. There's that, still that sense that, well, you know, let's embrace the people who are enabling all of this because what, what could possibly go wrong? Well, a lot could <laughs> possibly go wrong. So Glenn Youngkin, um, we have to mention this, um, I think recognized the political problem that he had with the same Pledge of Allegiance to the January 6th flag and, and did a rather remarkable pivot that we don't see very much. Um, so last night, he he backed. He tried. He's trying now to distance himself from it. He didn't distance himself from it until it became controversial. And now he is. Let's play that second soundbite. This is Glenn Youngkin. It wasn't just any flag, sir. It was a flag that the organizer said specifically had flown over the January yeah. 6th. So, so, so to be clear, I, I don't think of, of, if, if that I, I wasn't involved. And so I don't know. But if that is the case, then then we shouldn't pledge allegiance to that flag. And, and oh, by the way, I've been so clear. There is no place for violence. None. None in America today. OK, so that's that's quite a pivot. So here's a paradox, Bill, that that a lot of these Republicans, uh, you know, want to get the MAGA vote by portraying themselves as strong, forceful leaders who fight. And yet the Glenn Young and I'm from Wisconsin. You're you're right there. The Glenn Youngkin that I'm hearing is incredibly weak. <laughs> And cowardly and unwilling to push back against this until it just becomes too, uh, uh, you know, utterly humiliating. And he has to pretend that, well, I didn't really know much about that. He's like, (laughs) as if no one told him over the last 24 hours, there was this controversy going on. I mean, if you'd listen to the exchange with the uh, reporter, I think it is, who's asking the question, uh, he's clearly asked a previous question, which was sort of, well, what do you think about what happened last night with pledging allegiance to the flag? And Youngkin is, I believe, said something like, well, there's nothing wrong with pledging allegiance to the flag. We all do that. And then the reporter has to say, well, wait a second, that flag was you know, different from your typical flag and introduced as precisely a flag that was flown at the January 6th rally. And then he, Youngkin does that sort of half or Well, if that's the case, I mean, of course, I'm not really for that. And So, yeah, I agree. I mean, they, they all look weak, don't they? I mean, as they try to navigate this and but again, for me, it's the fundamental. If you're unwilling to really denounce it, if you're unwilling to really repudiate it, and he certainly has been unwilling to, he welcomed Trump's support and and featured Trump on his mailers uh, three, four months ago during the Republican primary. Uh, if you're not, I mean, Liz, you know, it's not like Liz Cheney. It's not even like others who have sort of kept at least a, a full distance. You know what I mean? I mean? Not everyone like Liz Cheney has been courageous and said, this is unacceptable. This is a threat to our democracy. We need to fully investigate January 6th. There are others. Youngkin could have gone into a kind of, look, 
I'm running for state office. I'm just not commenting one way or the other on anything that happens right. in Washington. A little crazy, but I mean, you could do that, I guess. But he hasn't, didn't do that. He wanted to use Trump to his advantage when it was to his advantage. And then, as you say, a kind of half-hearted distancing when he worries that it's going to hurt him. So what, that's not leadership. You know, look, we have a long history of cowardly politicians and, and demagogues, but it really strikes me that one of the through lines here is the unwillingness or the fear of Republican leaders to to treat voters as if they are grownups and right. to treat them as adults. Because you can imagine someone like Glenn Youngkin saying, look, I, I know that you're all disappointed. I understand that you um, you know don't like what's happening now. And I, and I agree with you, but the election was not stolen. It was not fair. I, I need to be honest with you about it. Um, and yet they're not willing to do that. So you get the fundraising appeals that just seem to think that lowest that I mean, it's the contempt. It's the built-in disdain and contempt for their own constituents and the unwillingness to actually think that they're grown-ups and then therefore act like a grown-up. And, and I think you're seeing that played out in Virginia. Totally. And the unwillingness to treat them like grown-ups then reinforces the craziness and and and, and their uh, inability, if maybe that's the right word, to to behave as grown-ups or to understand that what they're what they're being told on Fox or beyond Fox is false because I don't know how much difference it would make. Honestly, obviously these echo chambers are now pretty powerful and I'm not sure that Mitch McConnell or Glenn Youngkin or Ron Johnson or a whole lot of elected officials saying, wait a second, that's just not true. I'm not sure it would make that much difference. It would make some difference. People have voted for these characters or supported them in primaries and so forth. And if you had the Ron DeSantis's and the Greg Abbott's of the world, let's say, not equivocating or going along, though not being quite as crazy as some of the people who go along, you know, but actually saying, no, wait a second. We had a, we had a fair election in Texas. There's just nothing to any of this. I'm not interested in any audits. The people who are doing audits are damaging our democratic process. Now let's get back to debating economic policy in Texas. I mean, that would be, I don't know what percentage of Texas Republicans would sort of snap back towards sanity, but it would be some small percentage at least. And there's just the total absence of a willingness to stand up then just leads it to, you know, it's like any debate, right? One side is screaming and yelling and producing fake evidence. The other side is cringing in the corner. Well, of course, the, 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 first, the first side gains adherence because people look up and say, well, there doesn't seem to be any pushback on this. There seems to be no argument the other way. Okay, so speaking of crazy and speaking of things that are happening at the grassroots, I want to talk about this uh, latest story out of uh, uh, Texas, uh, and uh, the, the whole, uh, we need to teach both sides of the Holocaust. I, but you know, let's take a deep breath here, and we'll do this on the other side. If you're a fan of this podcast or any of our other podcasts here at The Bulwark, I really think you're going to enjoy our newest edition. It's called The Focus Group, and it's hosted by our own Sarah Longwell. Maybe you've heard Sarah talk about these focus groups that she conducts, but now she's actually sharing real audio from the participants. It's a great show, and I know you're going to love it. Again, it's called The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell, and you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you consume podcasts. Okay, we're back with Bill Crystal. Bill, I, I had to take a deep breath before we got into all of this. Uh, Texas seems to be kind of the epicenter of crazy. And, and, you know, it sort of goes back and forth. Is it Florida? Is it Texas? Is it Arizona? It's almost like there's a competition. Um, and, well, there actually is, isn't there? Yeah, but let me say a word about that. You know, we now, if you if you are 20 years old and you have been watching the last two, three, four years, you think, oh my God, Texas, that is really a crazy state. 
for those of us who are a little older or considerably older, it hasn't been a crazy state. And its Republican Party has not been a crazy party. Indeed, people like us, and I think we weren't I think we'd stick with this even today. We'd often cited Texas's economic policies as very successful. Texas had a huge percentage of the job growth from 2000 to about 2010, 2012. This was Rick Perry's big talking point for his presidential campaign, which admittedly didn't end up going so great. But uh, he wasn't, I don't think, all in all a bad governor. I'm sure he did some things we, we didn't like. And looking back, maybe a few more things we would question now. Mm-hmm. George W. Bush was governor of Texas before that. John Tower back in the day was a you know moderately conservative, hawkish Republican senator from Texas, but not a terrible demagogue. So Texas Republicanism, uh, John Cornyn got elected and he seemed like a normal mainstream you know Republican senator or former judge. So Texas Republicanism was not always crazy. It was a, kind of a mix of modern, what would you say, the New South kind of slightly progressive or moderate republicanism with a more sort of down-home Texas, you know, kind of cowboy attitude. But but it wasn't bad for the country, I wouldn't say. And uh, at least most of it wasn't. And um, and then suddenly we get this, this uh, explosion in Texas. And again, the radicalism feeds on itself. The craziness feeds on itself. Uh, a few people do leave the party. I mean, the, the former speaker, Republican speaker of the House in Texas, uh, Joe Strauss was a very moderate Republican who governed very successfully or helped governors there govern successfully. Uh, he now can't, you know, couldn't even, I mean, he was, couldn't even set foot, so to speak, in the Texas Republican Party. No, and so in the last week, just in the last week, we've had the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, try to outrun DeSantis by issuing an executive order that purports to ban any private company from setting its own standards on vaccinations. You know, again, the, the, the party of we don't want mandates, we don't want regulation, private businesses should be able to make decisions. Well, screw that. Um, Greg Abbott is so into the anti-vax world that he is banning private companies, including airlines who are based in Texas, from having vaccine mandates. I don't know where that's going to go. That was number one story. Then you have this other story out of South Lake, Texas, which is a suburb of uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, and this is a videotape that NBC got of, of, a, of an administrator. Her name is Gina Petty. And she's meeting with teachers to you know, advise them how to deal with this new Texas law, this House Bill 3979. This is a new Texas law signed by Greg Abbott, passed by the Republican legislature that requires teachers to always prevent multiple perspectives when discussing widely debated and controversial issues. And the teachers are not quite sure. This was passed as part of this uh, pushback against critical race theory. But but listen to the way this conversation goes, because it gets around to talking about the both sides of the Holocaust. We have two sound bites. Here, here's the way it begins with the administrator talking to the teachers about who are obviously very concerned now about this new law and what it means for their ability to teach in the classroom. We are in the middle of a political mess and you are in the middle of a political mess. And so we just have to do the best that we can. And so we're going to go and we're going to do you're going to do what you do best, and that's to teach kids. I think we're all just really terrified. I, I, I yeah. think you are terrified, and, and I wish I could take that away. I, I do. I can't. I can't do that. You are professionals. We hired you as professionals. We trust you with our children. So 
if you think the book is okay, then let's go with it. And whatever happens, we will fight it together. We will. There's a lot of districts that are in the exact same spot we're in. And no one knows how to navigate these waters. This is great. Yeah, this is this is going well. So what could possibly go wrong? Well, mm-hmm. the issue of books on the Holocaust come up. The audio is not great here, but you, you can hear her comment that just remember that if you have a book on the Holocaust, you have to have one that has other perspectives. And of course, the teachers are going, what? Let's play that. As you go through, just try to remember the concepts of 3979 and make sure that if 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 you have a book on the Holocaust, that you have one that has opposing, that has other books. How do you oppose the Holocaust? <laughs> Believe me, that's come up. Believe me, that's come up. So, again, deep, deep breath, Bill Crystal. This woman who doesn't sound crazy, she's trying to reassure the teachers, but specifically she brings up the idea of make sure you have both sides on the Holocaust. I don't know, what is that? If you teach about the Holocaust, you also have to teach Mein Kampf, what? I, I, yeah, I mean, God knows. So I would say what's interesting about it, I did listen to this tape, you know, what it came out a day or two ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, the administrator seems like, um, you know, a, a, in many ways, a kind of responsible administrator yeah. trying to reassure the teachers. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't have contempt for them when they say we're kind of terrified by, you know, look, this is a very tough situation. Yeah. The legislature's put us in. Um, I mean, I think she's obviously very foolish and, and, and it's, it's to raise the Holocaust. I don't know what she was thinking, but why would she have done it? Because someone did raise it to her and she sort of says that, right? I mean, clearly some lunatic, some kooky, you know, book burner type uh, said, well, Holocaust, we have to, you know, what about both sides on that? And she wasn't thinking, maybe she doesn't know very much. She's an administrator. The teachers seem quite sensible, I've got to say. I mean, yeah. they're alarmed about what they, how to navigate this. They're trying to be professionals. It seems like a public school system operating in, in a private meeting like this, kind of the way you'd might want it to, except for this, obviously, statement about the Holocaust, and except for the fact that they're put in a ridiculous position by the Texas legislature and by a bunch of kooky activists. But one thing about this, and this gets to the point about the just the tenor of the meeting, this is not, you know, rural Texas where no one has a college education and, uh, you know, people are just yahoos and some tiny group has taken over the school board and they're banning evolution or something. This suburb, I don't know that much about the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but I looked it up briefly. This is a very wealthy suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. I think the average income is $200,000 or something like that for a family. Houses sell for $800,000 on average. These are well-educated, well-off people, probably quite a good public school system. I wouldn't be surprised if people move there for the schools, you know. And these teachers seem like they're trying to be responsible. And the administrator may not be the, you know, the greatest ever, the way she raised the Holocaust, to to the least, but she's sort of trying to, you know, help the teachers, it sounds like. She's not browbeating them. And this is what we've come to. And this is what we've come to because of utter and total irresponsibility of people like Greg Abbott, who know better, and legislators, some of whom know better in the Texas uh, legislature, and and a fear of of, of the activists who have shown they will go to a lot uh, great lengths to intimidate uh, people at the school board meetings and stuff. That's also been underrated, you know, the degree to which we now have basically, you know, across the country, plenty of instances of not, thank God, too much out-and-out violence yet, but real intimidation, real threats, people really worrying about their families. I dismissed this a few months ago. Oh, come on, this is America. People aren't going to threaten public servants' families. And I remember a member of Congress, actually, who had voted for impeachment, saying to me, don't underestimate 
the mm -hmm. pure personal fear here of what's going, the kinds of messages right. people are getting. And it's not one wacko person with, you know, crayons or, you know, or, or some person with eight Twitter followers. It's people who seem to be sort of organized. And certainly you see that at these school board reasons. This is where the, what Trump has unleashed, I mean, it was already there, of course, and it's more than Trump, but what has been unleashed, let me put it this way, in the years of Trump, very hard to put that toothpaste back in the tube. And people get some percentage, maybe it's five, 10% of the population gets used to this kind of, uh, enjoys being bullies and, and, and you know, and, and intimidating others. And then this administrator gets t screamed at and she's worried about how to do her job and then the teachers are understandably worried. I mean, this is where the authoritarianism kind of cascades in a way that's so dangerous for the whole country. It is interesting how widespread this, uh, this the school board activism is at at the, at the school level. This is, I'm 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 not sure that people have fully taken on board the the scope of this or, or what a powerful wedge issue this is around the country, including in many of these affluent suburbs. So I live in a suburb um, that is pretty much like South Lake, the way you described it, uh, Mequon Thienesville. And there is a very, very well-organized and apparently well-funded uh, attempt to recall members of the school board. And it's become sort of a conservative versus liberal, although um, this kind of reminds me a little bit of what we were talking about at Virginia, where if you, if you listen to the public statements of the insurgents, the conservative insurgents, they sound kind of reasonable and they sound kind of like they're, they're, they're pushing academic excellence. And you go one or two levels down, though, and you get the real crazy, you know, people who are using Nazi analogies to talk about mask mandates. Um, and and this is taking place in a district that is probably either number one, number two or number three best academic district in the entire state. And yet um, it's happening. It's happening right here. And, uh, you, know, all, all, you know, all the usual suspects are saying, well, you must line up behind the conservative candidates for school board. Well, are they really conservatives or are they part of this sort of weird MAGA subculture out there? And I, I, I don't know where this is going, uh, except yeah. that I certainly would not underestimate it. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and you and I have been involved, I guess, what, 30 yeah. years? And you've written a lot about this, actually, yeah. books. The conservative, broadly speaking, critique of aspects of public education, of the education schools, of the curricula yeah. in various yeah. schools. And that is a lot of that critique has been legitimate and is legitimate. Yes. And we don't want a situation where people can't raise questions, uh, parents or, or teachers themselves, or even outsiders about what's being taught and so forth. You want to have some healthy debate about this. I don't think you want to micromanage it or have the individual parent be able to veto a book on a reading list, you know, of a, of a large public school system. But, um, and of course we have private schools in this country, which is good too, and get more choice. We should have more choice than you and I, God knows, before mm -hmm. that for terms of charter schools and vouchers and so forth. So all of that legitimate debate is now being swamped. And I think I would say corrupted by this, by this kind of activism. So that even I feel, you know, I would normally be, uh, you know, on the, might normally be on the side of some of the critics of the Fairfax County school board where I, where I live. And I guess I am on their side in some issues, but the tenor of the criticism, the, the, the heat at which it's offered and the irrationality of a lot of the criticism, the extremism, it, it makes me think, you know what, if we, we can't give that more oxygen. So for now, maybe the best thing is just to sort of uh, let the thing settle down. But it is what, this is why Bill Buckleeper, you know, said we can't tolerate the Birchers. If we want to be anti-communists, if we want to be critics of, of liberal 
uh, government policies uh, domestically, we can't have our legitimate criticisms tainted by insane conspiracy theories, which incidentally then as now shaded over into violence and bullying and bigotry. And, but who, unfortunately, so few Republicans now, conservatives, so few conservatives really, um, will stand up to the extremists. And those of us, Frank, who do, I would say, get denounced by these other conservatives as, hey, you know, you guys are just selling out to the liberals and to the Democrats. Well, okay, okay. so this is what's so frustrating for for me, because it is the clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right moment. Um, as, as you point out, I mean, we have been talking about education for years. I wrote a book called Dumbing Down Our Kids. This used to be my, my number one issue. And and there are moments where you look at I'm now going to conflate higher education. This story out of Yale, where apparently right. um, you know people were saying they were triggered by somebody being a member of the Federalist Society. I mean, this is freaking Yale Law School. Um, it, it you know that that sort of snowflake intolerant attitude. You know that needs to be. We need to push back against that. And yet now you have much of the right being co opted by the Christopher Rufo style demagogues, and it's like okay. There are legitimate critiques of this that need to be made, but the legitimate, I think I'm repeating what you just said, but the legitimate critiques are being drowned out by the crazy. And so where do you go? You know, yes, there's a problem, but this is not the way to approach it. And so that's where those of us who are kind of in the center, the rational center, are like looking around going, you know, what is our role in this debate? Because I'm not going to align myself with the people who think that a mask mandate is, you know, equivalent to Nazi Germany. But I'm also not going to align myself with the people who say that anybody who, you know, might be you know, a member of the Federalist Society at Yale needs to apologize to everybody because their feelings might be hurt by your position. I mean, what do we do? No, that's well said. Well, I think yeah. we do two things, I guess I would say. One is we criticize both sides and we criticize yep. intolerance on and liberalism and foolishness on both sides. And we, to the degree we have some clout in either a, a school district or a Yale law school, we weigh in and, you know, so it's not impossible to fight uh, enemies on the left and enemies on the right, fools on the left and jokers on the right, whatever. So that's one. And I, and I think it's certainly a fair, I'm sort of encouraged that there's a fair amount of that happening, you know, sort of a civil libertarians, pro-free speech people, pro-liberal education people, kind of old-fashioned liberals, if you will, kind of an alliance. And you do see decent people on the center left saying, wait a second, we can't be stopping people from having, you know, points of view and so forth. And so right. I, I think there's some opportunity there really for, as uh, we were talking earlier about an alliance, a coalition. But on this issue, it's going to be more than even just an alliance, because we really do share, I think, the fundamental principles of free speech, liberal education, balanced inquiry, open debate, uh, and so forth. Secondly, though, and this is the slight modification that some of our friends on the right don't want to accept, uh, we do need to also, I mean, we don't need to, people should make judgments, I'd say, about what are the most severe threats, what are the most urgent threats, what are the most serious threats. And I think in many of these cases, the right-wing intolerance, bigotry, extremism is just more, is more threatening, honestly, than these individual instances of leftist yeah. idiocy at individual campuses of higher education or private schools in New York City. I don't want to minimize that. And I, if I were at Yale and if someone asked me, even though I'm not at Yale, I'll certainly weigh in, you know, and have, you know, at least weigh in just in terms of opinion mm. about defending free speech at Yale and stuff like that. But, but I think in the national scope, one of these kinds of extremism has more or less now intimidated an entire national party 
and is totally in sync with the leader of that party, Donald J. Trump. The other form of extremism has pockets of strength in the Democratic Party and the other party, but isn't really represented by the leader of that party, Joe Biden, isn't really being encouraged by most of the responsible people in that party, and even some are speaking against it a bit. Terry McAuliffe has here in Virginia, uh, for example. Uh, Whereas... So I, you know, I, I don't think I, it's a, I don't think it's an equivalent problem, but I think both are real problems. So can we right. say both it's, those things at once? These are both real problems, but they're not quite equivalent problems. That's is that too much of a intellectual leap for people to get to? I don't know. Well, poli- politically, you know, it's it's, it's going to get you run over from both sides. That's that's part of the problem. Okay, so Bill, in the time we have left, can we talk about just the coronavirus and the vaccines just for a moment? Um, yep. because I know you, you've commented on the, on the whole issue of testing. So here is from, uh, David Leonard's newsletter in the New York times this morning about the booster shots and all the confusion, the science versus the bureaucracy. So uh, the FDA advisory panel is going to meet today on whether or not the Johnson and Johnson, uh, vaccine recipients should get a booster shot, but they're apparently not going to be voting on what seems to be the most relevant question. Should the booster shot come from one of the other vaccines? Can you mix and match? Can you get a, a booster from Pfizer or Moderna's? Okay. So then David Leonard writes, the scientific evidence increasingly suggests the answer is yes. Still, the FDA panel seems likely to duck the whole issue, rule only on whether Johnson & Johnson recipients should receive a Johnson & Johnson booster. And then his point is, this is the latest example of a recurring COVID problem. Again and again, government officials have chosen to follow pre-existing bureaucratic procedures, even when doing so has led to widespread public confusion and counterproductive behavior. And I guess I have been increasingly frustrated watching all of this, watching the, the death toll, watching the number of people vaccinated, and then watching the FDA sort of, you know, piddle long, take its time and put out or between the FDA and these in the CDC put out conflicting things. I mean, at some point we are going to have to come to grips with this bureaucracy. Do you agree? Yes. I mean, I think it fits in, in a way it's parallel to our earlier discussion five minutes ago, which is surely there is a middle ground or a higher ground or a better ground than either Trumpian insanity, where you just ignore science and you ignore the scientists and you ignore the professionals and you just, you know, pick up crackpot uh, fake cures and promote those for your own reasons. And that's a, that's an insanity that's pretty pervasive now, incidentally, uh, on Fox and everywhere else on the right, obviously. So that's what, on the one side. There's a middle ground, though, between that and bu- bureaucratic sluggishness, business as usual, you know, the procedures that we followed eight years ago for approving some cough medicine are really what we want to follow uh, for approving possible life-saving yes. vaccines okay. and, you know, and society reopening vaccines and tests, I would say, incidentally, uh, uh, you know, in the middle of a pandemic. Now, that's a little bit unfair, probably the FDA, which I'm sure has to balance a lot of things. And obviously they would be criticized if any of these, these things went wrong. But, you know, they've they've for years been very concerned about They've erred on the side of caution, which you probably, you might want in many cases, but not so much in this case. And anyway, it doesn't seem like it's even caution at this point. It just seems like it's bureaucracy, certainly on the testing, which is the thing I I sort of know the most about. David Leonhardt's been an excellent reporter on this. I've got to say for all of our criticisms of the New York Times, if you've just followed him and met a few other people, uh, Ashish Shah, our friend who you've had on, and I've done conversations with public health, uh, uh, Dean at Brown. Emily Oster, an economist at Brown, has been really excellent on the school side of it. 
I, I feel like this is a case where there's been a pretty intelligent public debate. That is, I think if you, you know, if you came down and looked at America, you say, yeah, people are being pretty, pretty good at balancing risks and opportunities, and they're not crazy one way or the other. An awful lot of the kind of public health types, the economists and public policy types who are weighing in. Uh, but then you, some of the journalists covering it in the Atlantic and the New York Times and at the Bulwark and elsewhere. But then uh, you know, the, the sluggishness of the government, I guess the Biden administration, they're so worried. I've been told this by people pretty close to them. They're so worried about looking like Trump. They, I mean, Biden did so much, you know, about, you know, where I'm not going to interfere with the scientists, unlike Trump, that they're now- Don't, don't I, intervene, don't intervene, yeah. Yeah, they're falling back too much on non-intervention and on, uh, we don't want to look political. Well, at some point, you got to make a judgment here as president. And we don't have an FDA director yet, a, a, a permanent one, you know, and there's uh, just an article today I read about how there are these fights and they may appoint the previous FDA director from 2016. And I mean, I mean, again, does it ultimately, yes, there could be an acting director who can run the place, but it does sort of change the dynamics between- White House, you know, guidance and, and sense of urgency and the bureaucracy chugging along. Bill Crystal, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast uh, today. Appreciate it very much. No, thanks, Charlie. I thought this was, if I could say, an unusually interesting discussion. Though, oh, of course, they're always they're always interesting with you, but well, I enjoyed I'm, I'm, it. I'm glad to hear that. And thank you all for listening to this weekend's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Monday and we'll do this all over again.